by the year 1600 or so, the story of New France is 80 years old. And yet, historians widely consider Samuel de Champlain, who is only just arriving on the scene, to be the true father of New France. Those same people would say Samuel de Champlain's influence on history, in general, not just for New France, cannot be overstated. And yet, he exists at that strange time where normal folks basically went unrecorded. And we have records of kings and queens and princesses and everything they ever did. But the normal folks, the untitled people, they're just right around the years 1550, all the way up to 1650, they're just starting to enter the historical record. Whereas before they lived without any sort of paperwork concerning them. And so almost every detail about Samuel D. Champlain's birth and even his childhood is debatable and argued by scholars back and forth. His education, the exact birth date, his religion, all of this is in question. For example, we know later in life he was a Catholic, but based on his birthplace and his name and the town he came from, it seems likely that he was born a Protestant and changed at some time, which was very common at this time in France. By the time that he starts writing himself, Samuel de Champlain knows how to make maps, he knows how to navigate, he speaks French, English, Spanish, maybe some Dutch, Portuguese, some Basque, and so scholars assume that he came from a family of sailors, because there's really no record of him ever receiving a classical education of any sort, any sort of university education. The historian and all-around awesome guy David Hackett Fisher mentions that in Champlain's writing, there are there's almost no use of Greek or Latin words that would imply a higher level of education. Champlain seems to have learned everything that he knew on the job. He was born around 1570, right in the midst of all of these French Civil Wars. And as a young man, he ended up fighting on the Catholic side. Again, probably born Protestant, switching over to Catholic, very similar to the King of France himself, Henri IV. And because it seems that the king showed favoritism towards this nobody, Samuel de Champlain, with no title, no nobility, simple sailing family background, uh, it's suspected by some that Samuel's real father was the king himself. Now, this is all rumor, of course. But, in general, around 1569, 1570, uh, King Henri IV was in the general area where Samuel de Champlain was born, and he was known to get around quite a bit. I mean, he was future king of the country. Furthermore, Samuel de Champlain seems to have always known the king. There's no record of when exactly he first meets the king of France. And Champlain, in his own writings, claimed to be, in quotes, bound from birth to Henri IV. What does that mean? People have have scoured their eyes over that phrase over and over again to try to get some kind of juicy bit of uh, gossip out of it uh, to no avail. And I'm not the conspiratorial type, but at the end of the day, we know that this king had many illegitimate offspring. We know where he was, and we know how men and women are. There's a better than zero chance that he's actually Samuel D. Champlain's father. Better than zero. But is it 50%? Probably not. We don't know. It's, it's unknowable. But it's better than zero. It is possible, but not probable, in my opinion. What we do know is that these Protestant families from the north and the west of France were some of this king's greatest supporters. And so he showed not just Samuel de Champlain favoritism, but his whole family, including extended family, cousins, second cousins, onward and all the way out, uh, despite them being Catholic or Protestant. 
And so it wasn't so much a king showing favoritism towards one random dude, which is very suspect, but his entire extended clan, essentially. And in a nation that would become enveloped in so many civil wars, it was important to reward those people who were loyal to you, especially if they spanned both Protestant and Catholic faiths. So if I was a betting man, I would say Champlain's father is not Henri IV. But I do like gossip. And who knows? He could be. It's known that Champlain fought in the French wars of the 1590s. And through that, he rose through the ranks, became more and more prominent. By 1595, he became known as a Sir. Which, at the time, you had to earn the title of Sir. Now everyone's a Sir. Your dog is a Sir. But in 16th century France, Sir was a title. Uh, Same as England and many other different places. You had to own a certain amount of land or have a certain amount of wealth. You couldn't just call yourself Sir without an explanation. Again, was his rising status in society due to his own efforts or favoritism of the king or both? It's, It's debatable. By 1598, Champlain, for no explained reason, was seeking a way to get to New Spain. The New World. He wanted to get to the the southern part of North America. He wanted to get to parts of South America today. He wanted to get to the islands of the Caribbean. Why did he want to go there suddenly? He wanted to find his way onto a Spanish treasure fleet. And he used one of his wealthy uncles in order to do that. An uncle whose ships would be contracted out to the King of Spain. Officially, Champlain was merely curious about the New World. Unofficially, all of his descriptions of New Spain would find their way back to the King of France. And so with no orders or commission, Champlain was writing personal letters to the King of France, addressed to the King of France, describing the fortifications of various places in New Spain, of the different ports and the different populations. And so adding these pieces together, Samuel D. Champlain, born a sailor, became a soldier, is now a spy. For the king himself. And if you don't believe me, there are reasons confirming this that I'll mention in a couple minutes. But let's talk about his time in New Spain. First of all, his first landing in the Americas, as far as we know, the mainland, was in Mexico. Samuel D. Champlain, the founder of New France, the first time he ever came to this, to this uh, part of the earth, these two continents, he was actually in Mexico. And you wouldn't believe it, but when he was down in Panama, also part of New Spain, he envisioned and he wrote about creating a canal that would pass from one side of Panama to the other side, uniting uh, the the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Does this sound familiar to you? This is Samuel D. Champlain, 400-something years ago. When I learned these things, they just blew my mind, because this was an entire chapter of Champlain's life that I had no awareness of. Now, the first time he saw natives was on the island of Guadalupe, and he tried to talk to them, but they ran away from him. Uh, The natives were very afraid of the Spanish, obviously. And Champlain witnessed the natives who were underneath the Spanish yoke and the maltreatment. And he he always remembered that. And he took note that the French were not going to be doing that. Any French colonization efforts would not treat the natives in the same way the Spanish did. He drew a line in the sand. And I have to say, you know, you're going to find out in the next couple episodes that he kept that line in the sand. Even when facing his native enemies, the French would never be as cruel as the Spanish. Now, it seems as though Champlain was in New Spain for a long time. It wasn't just a small visit. He was in New Spain from the summer of 1599, at least until the spring of 1601. So, about a year and a half. And wouldn't you know it, after Champlain took it upon himself, I'm doing air quotes, to go to New Spain and report to the King of France about everything going on there, tactically anyway, 
Suddenly, in the summer of 1601, for no apparent reason, King Henri IV begins giving Champlain a pension. He receives a royal pension. The man is about 31 years old, and he's set for life. He also received, at that time, and for the next year, he'd be working at the Louvre as a royal geographer. And it is known that when Champlain was in France, he spent time with the king. Uh, the king, it's believed, enjoyed hearing about Champlain's far-off adventures. A king as powerful as he is would never be able to go and see these places that he apparently ruled over. It was the freedom Champlain had in being a seemingly nobody that the king kind of admired and kind of longed for. It was a prince and pauper situation. That very same year, 1601, he's hanging out with the king. He's a royal geographer. He already has his pension. His rich uncle dies, and he had been taking care of him. This is the same uncle that got him to New Spain. And the rich uncle left everything to Champlain, which made him enormously rich. David Hackett Fisher records that the amount of money Champlain received was more than 500 years worth of an average man's salary at the time. 500 years worth. In today's money, that would be millions upon millions. So here he is on the verge of 32. He's got a pension. He knows the king. He's got a great job. And he's got enough money that he really never needs to work again. But of course, he wouldn't stop working. A man who built himself up so well was so motivated so early in life. Uh, they Rarely do people like that just stop on a dime. He became interested in New France, which if you've been listening to this podcast up until this point, has mostly been a story of failure. And most of the money to be derived from it came from the St. Lawrence, uh, controlled by secretive merchant families whom Champlain didn't seem to have any connection with. Now, at this time, the geographers considered New France roughly about 40 degrees north latitude on up. So in North America today, that would be somewhere around New Jersey on the one end, and on the west coast, the northern portion of California on up. So the claims to Florida long since gone. Obviously, that's part of Spain. In reality, the natives are in full control pretty much. But New France would be a huge chunk of what is now the United States, and then all of what is now Canada. Champlain read everything he could find about Cartier and Roberval and about French Florida, all the various people there. He, he read about the, the newer uh, fisheries going on, these summer colonies as we've talked about, Chauvin and La Roche and everything we've learned about thus far. He poured himself over, studied it, absorbed it, ate it up, and began developing opinions about why these things failed. You, you failed to grow food. You didn't uh, prepare enough beforehand and your operations fell apart back in France when it came time for resupply. He had tons of opinions. You didn't have good enough relations with the Native Americans. That's something he would levy on Jacques Cartier. And just as he was able to plug himself into the operations of New Spain, uh, he thought it'd be a lot easier as, you know, uh, best bud of the king to get himself involved in the operations of New France. And this is precisely where we pick up from our last episode. Who now was in control of the monopoly and the titles to the fur trade along the St. Lawrence in New France? The last episode ended with cannibalism and mutiny on Sable Island. And all the titles being held by one man by the name of de Chavon. Or de Chavon, or Chavin. I don't know. I don't know French. But he himself had the failed colony at Tudesac, the Innu a uh, place for trading furs. Chauvin himself was now looking to sell all of these titles and rid himself of the New World entirely. Enter into our story, Vice Admiral of the Navy, 
Aymar de Chase. De Chase was an older man with a lifetime of experience and adventures behind him, a number of titles of his own and, and achievements. He was a friend of the king, and this would be his final frontier. Every title that Shalvin had now transferred to de Chase, and the king emboldened them with grander terms. His monopoly would specifically cover the latitudes 40 degrees north to 46 degrees north. Pretty much, as we mentioned in our last episode, New Jersey, northern New Jersey, on up. And so again, here we are around the year 1600, and much of New France is inside of what is now the United States. With the king's approval and support, and Chauvin's titles, de Chase was uh, tasked with creating a permanent settlement, something that had not been done yet in this part of the earth by the French. Seemingly impossible. But de Chase, despite his advanced age, had tons of resources at his disposal, had lived through a dozen wars, had fought in many of them, and had always managed to keep a decent reputation with every faction in France. Francis Parkman writes of him, De Chase was one of those men who, amid the strife of factions and rage of rival fanaticism, makes reasons and patriotism their watchwords, and stands the firm ground of strong and resolute moderation. To plan his colony, he went to the court of Henri IV, which would be full of influential people, or people who could just get things done. So, at any given day in the court, you would see cardinals, you'd see royal governors, you'd see generals, admirals like himself. Of course, they, the whole place would be flushed with mistresses. There'd be artists, there'd be adventurers, and there would also be royal geographers. Uh, a man in his 30s by the name of Samuel de Champlain. It must have been like a godsend for de Chaste, because suddenly, falling right into his lap, you have a capable guy who the king likes, that's always good to have on your side. Um, a man who was a spy, so he has no allegiance to anyone other than France. His, his loyalty has been proven. A guy who's already been to the New World. And he's also a map maker and has some experience with natives. Champlain and De Chaste, they find that their interests are overlapping. And De Chaste wants to hire Champlain. But they need the king's permission first because he's a royal pensioner. Of course, the king gives his permission. But Champlain would be participating as a representative of the king and would be also carrying out royal duties to map parts of New France. De Chaste explains to Champlain his whole plan, how he wants to start a colony, the people he knows there, the preparations he was making, and his idea that he wanted to rope all these San Malo traders who had, for 60 or plus years, been in control of the trade along the St. Lawrence into buying licenses from him participating in his monopoly, finally bringing it under one person's control. Inevitably, the merchants of St. Malo, they've seen this before. They've seen people get monopolies and been completely unable to uh, financially benefit from them or enforce them. And so they refuse. But Champlain, he's in. And so here we are, some dozen or so plus minutes into the podcast, and Champlain is headed towards New France. It took about 10 weeks for Champlain and others to cross the Atlantic. And during those 10 weeks, he became quite close to a couple other people on the expedition with him. First of all, there were three Innu who had traveled to France several years previously as representatives of the Innu people to the French people. They came of their own will. They were not kidnapped. And in the French records, they were referred to as, as princes, which, of course, the Innu didn't have titles like that. It's likely they were uh, kin of the leading chief at Tadoussac, 
These men would be essential to endearing the French to the Innu. Another character on board had long been in the St. Lawrence, who's a Frenchman by the name of Francois Pointgrave, sometimes recorded as Francois Grave Dupont. He had participated in the failed colony of Tadoussac that was under the uh, auspices of Chauvin, who sold his monopoly again to De Chaste. And so it all connects together. Pontgrave, by all descriptions, was already surly, already seeming kind of old despite being about 40. He was about 10 years older than Champlain. It's, it's hard to know exactly when he was born. Pontgrave was a son of Saint-Malo. Again, Jacques Cartier's influence being felt over and over again, even into the next century. Samuel Eliot Morrison, the famed historian, describes Pontgrave as a big jolly chap pushing 50 years of age with a voice so loud that he was always called upon to hail passing ships at sea. I always picture him as like a big crusty pirate, huge red beard and mustache and a big old hat, maybe a bird on his shoulder. I don't know if he actually looked like that, but that's the image I always get in my mind of him. Slightly overweight, but the man wasn't fond of writing. And so he, he remains somewhat mysterious because we know he was in the St. Lawrence during these years of silence. The conspiracy of silence that I brought up in the last episode. So who knows what adventures he went on uh, before he turned 50 and shows up in our account. But the historian Bruce Trigger says of Pontgrave, he was at least as important as Champlain is during the first three decades of the 17th century. So we should always keep this guy on our radar. Because although we don't get to hear his own words, he's always playing an important role in the background. Even when someone like Samuel D. Champlain might take credit for it. Grave Dupont's job was to lead the expedition and to find a suitable location to begin a new colony. Champlain's job was to create maps of every place they went. Particularly to identify the waterways in and out. The ships arrived at Tadoussac May 26, 1603. Now again, Tadoussac, or the many different ways you say this place, this is the uh, area where the Innu had concentrated the fur trade onto themselves. And the few clans that were uh, part of the southern Innu cultural system, they were in control of that trade. And all of the furs to the north and to the west of this point were filtered through the Innu. And that's how they got out to the Europeans. This meant that the Innu had a monopoly on the fur trade. The only exceptions being those further down the St. Lawrence, closer to the Atlantic Ocean, who had some coastline and were able to sell their own furs in their small territories. The Innu, however, had a far grander system to draw from and furs of far higher quality because they came from points north where the animals were quite a bit more furry. More furry? Is that how you'd say it? You know what I mean. When Champlain and DuPont arrived, there was a huge gathering of natives. These would be Innu and many other related Algonquin groups who just returned from the warpath against the Iroquois, and they had been victorious. This would be the site of their summer encampment, and so women and the children were there, as well as the warriors. The three Innu princes who came with them brought them to the head chiefs in the main Tabagi, where they smoked tobacco, Champlain perhaps for the very first time. Smoking anything in France was not quite fashionable yet. I know that's surprising. And so many early sources refer to smoking as drinking smoke. They literally didn't have a word for inhaling smoke. They would refer to it as drinking. The three princes, in quotes, ingratiated the French to the Innu and spoke of the wonders of France and their fair treatment and everything else. 
Many also suspect that DuPont was also known to them by this point, being part of uh, Chauvin's Taudusak colony. They were allowed to spend some time at the site of the encampment during this huge celebration where they tortured Iroquois captives. It'd be the first time Champlain saw anything quite like that. He would have seen fish weirs along the shoreline, catching eels for the most part. Uh, wigwams, summer wigwams with a, enough airflow going through it to keep you cool on those hot nights. Women carrying on the torture of the Iroquois, doing their gathering, doing their fishing. Men coming back with what they hunted from the forests. Champlain noticed among the hundred or so wigwams, there were dogs. The Innu had pet dogs. And he was a guest for all the celebrations. And he saw the drum beating and the singing of the men and the women in ways he had never heard before. Far different than the, the chants he would have heard in a cathedral or a church. You see, at this point, the French have done everything right with the Innu. They had their own translators, who they brought willingly to France and back again safely. That was good. They came with gifts, and they exchanged gifts, and they went to the headman first, and they smoked a pipe of tobacco before they discussed any business. They were acting uh, perfectly polite within the rules of the uh, northern Algonquin custom. And so it was at this point that it is believed they formed some sort of an alliance. Again, Champlain would only have a vague understanding of what this alliance would have meant to the Innu. But there was some coupling of a trade arrangement with a military obligation, as you will often see with Native American and First Nation groups. The Innu were impressed enough with the French that they allowed Champlain to take a sloop and go up and down the St. Lawrence. This was a big deal. They were allowing him to scope out territories that French traders usually were not allowed into. Again, previously, all the traders being funneled into the one settlement of Tadoussac. Samuel de Champlain actually located the site of Jacques Cartier's settlement and Roberval's settlement. Here he probably saw some posts in the ground, the rest of the site being picked over by natives and God knows who else. It probably served as a warning to him on how wrong colonization can go if you don't check off all your boxes. Champlain scouted out and named the site of Trois-Rivières, Three Rivers. I believe I pronounced that semi-correctly in French. And just like Cartier, Roberval, and Cartier's nephew Noel, he climbed Mount Royal. What was different this time, though, was the observer, where Cartier and the other ones, uh, they looked out from the mountaintop and saw nothing. A desert of opportunity. Waterways that led nowhere. No passage to the west. No gold mines, no silver mines, no opportunity whatsoever. Samuel de Champlain, on the other hand, he saw gently rolling rivers. He saw plains that could be tilled and farmed. He saw grand forests with huge trees that could be turned into massive ships. Again, under-inhabited because of the recent loss of the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Champlain saw opportunity, but this would be about the limit of his travels on this particular expedition. He wanted to go up the Saguenay River, but to do so, the Innu said, would be a death sentence for him. This river would lead north and further inland and would essentially sidestep Tadasek, cut into the supply route of the Furs, and lead to territories that were controlled by other clans of the Innu. So that would be it for Champlain. Although, he would ask the natives for a description what lays beyond what I can see? What's out there? He wanted to know, especially what was to the west. And the natives described the Great Lakes region. They described Niagara Falls. 
which, believe you me, did not exactly raise the hopes of there being a westward passage and a humongously long waterfall that would seem impossible by European standards. But there could still be a portage. Maybe just a short walk, you'd end up at a river that dumped out into the Pacific Ocean. Who knew? Important to our story is that they were fairly truthful. They talked about a group of Iroquois who lived among these great lakes that we know as the Huron, and they called the Good Iroquois. And they, they were there. That was truthful. They're going to be an important part of our story later on. And they also never never mentioned the Kingdom of Saguenay that Jacques Cartier was uh, played victim to, essentially, by Donacona and the St. Lawrence Iroquois, who convinced them that far to the west was this magical kingdom of gold, and you could get there. But you had to levy favors onto the St. Lawrence Iroquois first. None of that shenanigans went on. And so at this point in 1603, the Innu are on the level. The French are on the level. They're making agreements. They're understanding one another more or less. The men had scouted out a couple potential locations for a colony in the future. It was time to go home. This particular trip was for exploration, not for settlement. They returned to France victorious, only to learn that Admiral de Chaste, their fearless leader and boss, had died. But they had traded enough furs to bring back to France that there was a net profit of 30 to 40 percent just on that one trip and before the year was over Champlain was able to publish an account of his experiences in New France now this really kicks off the primary sources that are left behind for this period in time because a lot of them are written by Champlain himself which begs the question that historians have asked for centuries how much of the uh, deeds attributed to Champlain were actually done by him and how many were uh, the result of Champlain self-aggrandizing his own exploits. So there might be a portion of the history that we know concerning New France that has been twisted to uh, titillate the ego of one man. This will be, continue to be debated for centuries to come, but it's safe to say at least Champlain did not underrepresent his role in the formation of New France. Another issue affecting us today that percolate out from his writings is the use of the word savage. Well, that'd be the English translation. Today, when we hear the word savage, we think of a primitive person who lacks morals and culture, has no concept of government, and generally lives in ignorance of the finer things our species can create. Champlain didn't use the word savage in his writings when describing the natives. He used the French word sauvage, S-A-U-V-A-G-E. Now, scholars debate the real meaning of this, too. The historian David Hackett Fisher says that sauvage in French means forest dwellers. It, it doesn't have this negative connotation of a wild, uh, remorseless, evil, uh, primitive being. It just means people who live in the forest. That's David Hackett Fisher's point of view on Champlain's use of sauvage. Fisher also mentions that this entire discussion has to take into account that it predates modern race theories, modern ideas of ethnicity that would take a while to form. But this was 400 years ago. Things were very different. And that it wasn't meant to demean the native people. That would be one extreme view of Champlain's use of sauvage. We go back a generation to a different historian, Francis Jennings, equally esteemed in his field. He says of Champlain's use of sauvage, that in all uses of the term, the sauvage, the savage, was always inferior to civilized man. So we have one preeminent historian saying, oh, it wasn't meant offensively, and it predates 
how it would have been offensive. It, to the modern ear, it sounds offensive, but it was a long time ago. Then we have another historian on the other end of the spectrum saying, oh no, it was absolutely an insult. It absolutely meant someone of a lesser rank, lesser life form even, than a civilized man. But I'll leave you with this. Samuel D. Champlain, not a modern man, lived a long time ago. And if you held him up against other men at that time by our modern standards, he would come out pretty much on top. It'd be You'd be hard-pressed to find a guy more modern 400 years ago than Samuel D. Champlain. And so Savage, Sauvage, let's look at his treatment of Native Americans moving forward and First Nations people moving forward in future episodes. And then by the end of our story of New France, you decide what Champlain meant by it. That's the best I can offer you. Anyway, the expedition was profitable. The admiral was dead. But all his rights and privileges and titles in New France now had real tangible value. Somebody out there will take up the cause. And that's where Pierre Dumont enters our story. He had been part of Chauvin's expeditions to Tautasuk in the failed colony several years before. He had been in the St. Lawrence. He had experience. He was a very wealthy merchant and very well connected. Born somewhere between 1558 and 1560, he was actually a Calvinist, a Huguenot, and a Protestant minister, although he married a Catholic woman. And he was one of those few members of French society who could bridge the gap between the two religious groups and didn't see an issue with both groups working together, rare in a time of religious civil wars. This made him very similar to Champlain and King Henri IV himself. He secured the rights and the titles and the monopoly, and Dumont formed a company for capitalizing on these privileges. Among this reformed effort, uh, Dumont found that Champlain would still be an asset, of course. And he needed to ask the king again for permission, because he was a royal pensioner, to participate in this new expedition. And so the two of them went to King Henri IV. Lucky for the both of them, Dumont was already a very good friend of the king, and Champlain, a young adventurer that the king could live vicariously through. And so they secured a 10-year fur trading monopoly for New France. The one enticing, juicy bit of potential that the king grasped onto was the idea, probably planted by Champlain, that there could still be a westward passage through the North American continent to the Orient. And so leaving the king's court, they left with everything they wanted. But they had the stipulation, as the previous monopolies had, that they needed to settle people. They needed to begin actually colonizing and peopling New France with French people. And to that end, Dumont had to make sure that everything was going to be profitable. It's very expensive to plant colonists anywhere, for that matter. And so what he had to do was get those San Malo traders to buy into his monopoly, to purchase licenses or to invest. And he managed to do it. Where everybody else failed, he, for at least a little while, was able to rope in all those private traders who had been up and down the St. Lawrence ever since Jacques Cartier went there from San Malo himself. Under one company, a truly united effort to make something out of New France. Now, before packing up any boats and heading back to New France, Champlain and Dumont, they debated back and forth where exactly to plant a new colony. Dumont had been part of Tadoussac and had traveled there at some point in time, probably when uh, de Chauvin owned it. And there was that disastrous winter that he actually might have been part of. I'm not exactly sure. 
And so uh, Dumont did not prefer the St. Lawrence. He thought it was too cold. It would freeze over in the wintertime. And scurvy would appear to kill everyone off anyway, given enough time. He just didn't think that Frenchmen could thrive there. And so he looked to the lower portion of New France, uh, a portion of land that was called Acadia on the French maps, which roughly today would represent a large swath of the northern United States, especially New England, all the way further west with seemingly no limit. Champlain argued that the best furs were in the St. Lawrence, the most plentiful furs, and there was always that small potential that there would be a way to get further west, perhaps all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But Dumont, he was the owner of the Monopoly. He was the leader. And at the end of the day, his opinion won out. Champlain and company would be headed to Acadia. And so tune into our next episode, when the father of New France himself finally participates in the colonization of New France. And wouldn't you know it, the first settlement they attempt will be within the modern-day borders of the United States. And that's why this is the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.